Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Plains on the Prairie podcast. I am Max. And I'm Sam. And today we are on, is it already episode four is episode of our four. North Dakota Aces series, huh? Yep. Wow, we are fast. we are, and we're flying through them. We hope you guys are enjoying listening to them. Uh, today's episode revolves around Hillsboro, North Dakota native Alfred Friendberg. Um, Sam, we were talking about it a little bit before the episode. We really couldn't find a whole lot of information about this guy. No, we kind of had to dig around. It may it might be a shorter episode. But, yeah, you know the story is still cool all the same. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, once again, we're very thankful to the Fargo Air Museum for having that awesome. Uh, North Dakota Aces series, you know, without that exhibit, we wouldn't, this series wouldn't be possible. Exactly. Because, you know, whoever put that together, however many years ago, did such a good job at researching these pilots, um, you know, finding out their life story and the color profiles of their aircraft are really cool. Whew, man, that is cool. Um, so yeah, without further ado, I'd, I'd say you want to just hop right in. Yeah, let's do it. Cool. All right. So as we mentioned, his name was Alfred Friendberg, and he was born on February 28th, 1919 in Hillsboro, North Dakota. And for those that aren't aware, Hillsboro is about just under halfway or is it halfway? Between? It's about halfway to Grand yeah. Forks, half hour drive. Yeah. So pretty close to Fargo. Um, he graduated from Hillsboro High School in 1937. And uh, we don't really know much about what he did between 1937 and 1941, uh, but we know that he enlisted in the U.S. Navy prior to Pearl Harbor in early July of 1941 and received his wings of gold almost actually a year and 10 days afterwards on, I believe, um, July 13th, 1942. Um, And he was directly assigned to VF-16 on board the second USS Lexington CV-16. Uh, Sam, do you want to talk a little bit about his first kill? Yeah, so uh, he got his first victory uh, in uh, October 1943. Uh, basically, 1943, there wasn't a lot of big decisive carrier battles. Um, they kind of got out of their system for a while in 1942 with Coral Sea, uh, the Guadalcanal engagements, and of course, Midway. Um, so they uh, had a strike on Wake. They were just doing a nuisance-type raid, and Hey, shot down a zero. So um, you'll find that all of his kills will be zeros, yeah. which will be really cool. Um, but yeah. Yeah. No, you know, normally I know with our last, um, you know, ace Oscar Cohen, he had scored, you know, an HS-126 and JU-88. Kind of a know. grab bag. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, you know, with Alfred, it's, you know, all the same. So pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I know his second kill uh, came during the invasion of Tarawa. Um I believe in no- late November 1943, so a couple months after his first kill, um, where he scored another zero kill. And then the following day, uh, he actually scored three more, um, which, you know, made him an ace. And Very I think quick you were saying, ace, yeah. yeah, quick ace. Ex- absolutely. Um, you said that he, uh, you were saying before we started, um, Friendberg was one of the three 1943 yeah, aces. One of the first three aces of the squadron. So the squadron we'll talk about more was formed yeah, the same year. So it, yeah, pretty impressive. And he was among, or those three were among 17 shot down by the squadron, um, all in one day, which is pretty impressive yeah. for that time in the war. Absolutely. Um, and I, Sam, I know you really enjoyed talking about the Marianas tricky shoot. So I'll let you cover his last kill. Yeah. So his last <laughs> kill came quite a bit later. Um, Basically, um, he yet another zero, his sixth zero and final kill came on June 19th, 1944. So that was in the first day 
of the Battle of the Philippine Sea or the Great Marianas Turkey shoot. So one of 500 plus airplanes <laughs> shot down, but still impressive. Yes, yeah, absolutely. No, I kind of getting off topic here, but do you ever play uh, Heroes of the Pacific? I did a long time. Oh yeah. my gosh, <laughs> I I'll never forget that mission, man. It was oh yeah, so much fun, and it made up for. I, I don't remember what mission it was, but when you're in a TBM trying to torpedo some of the Japanese characters, I about threw my controller yeah. through my window or wall. It was just <laughs> the absolute worst. Um, so yeah, after uh, after the war, Friendberg um, returned back to North Dakota and actually enrolled in my alma mater, uh, North Dakota Agricultural College or NDAC, which would eventually become North Dakota State University in 1960. Um, another kind of interesting tidbit, something that I was able to find during my research today, is he continued his flying career with the 178th Fighter Interceptor, well, the, at the time, Fighter Squadron of the North Dakota Air National Guard, which we actually, in a way, covered during our first Planes on the Prairie North Dakota Aces series yep. um, with Scrappy Bloomer. Uh, so I, I was able to find that um, Friendberg was the only Navy pilot that transitioned to really? the North Dakota Air National Guard. Hmm. Um, I was reading an interview. Well, it was in a newspaper from, I believe, 1948. And the commander at the time was talking about, you know, all of our pilots are because at the time, you know, these returning North or um, returning pilots from the war almost all had combat experience right. in some way, shape, or form. And he said that all but one of the pilots had been army pilots during the war. And that kind of really narrowed it down with who that one guy yeah. out was. And I was able to confirm via a picture that yes, he was there. That was actually him. Um, he was photographed in 1947. So, you know. Let one of the charter members of the North Dakota Air National Guard. Um, yeah, that's really cool. Huh? Not more, a lot of other units have a lot of naval pilots. It's that was surprising. That's the first I've heard of, yeah, him being the only naval aircraft and you know, fighter pilot. As I was reading these uh newspaper excerpts, I was kind of kicking myself, like, why did we not include this in the book that I read? Yeah. I, you know, it's one of those hindsight things, but little behind the scenes book here that you guys are getting exclusively <laughs> on planes on the prairie um so it said it, by 1947 he was serving as the 178th fighter squadron's flight commander with f-51 mustangs so something that i've noticed especially in the 1940s and 50s is you would have like three or four different um aircraft within a unit that were marked with stripes mm. like four stripes denoted you know wing commander three stripes was squadron commander two stripes was flight officer and then the other one was um, you know another like high-ranking sure. officer commander of some group well within the organization basically so technically i know the north dakota air national guard actually didn't do stripes on their mustangs but as the flight commander he would have worn a two stripe if sure it was following other um, Air National Guard Mustang units. But uh, he got out sometime before the 1950s. Um, he was in no like mentions of, you know, Korean War activation. So my guess is he got, you know, he'd had his fix of flying for the military. So sure. um, he got out. And from what we were able to find, he went to work for is it Lockheed, Lockheed yeah. for more than 28 years. Um, and then afterwards, lived until uh i believe february 2002 and passed away at the age of 
or 84, one of those two. Um, but yeah, quite the incredible story. And again, you know, we're, we apologize that it might be a little short, but there, there was nothing. No, like, we, we no talk, obituary. I, no. I spent a good six hours probably just looking around. For Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's, you know, all the previous aces have been well documented. Mm-hmm. So, you know, interestingly, why this gentleman had nothing behind him, we, we will never know. No. So, yeah, Sam, if you want to talk a little bit, uh, moving on into our next section about uh, the squadron. Yeah, so VF-16 was formed in 1943, originally with F6F3 Hellcats. Um, and that's what's pictured if you ever go to the museum. The side profile of of uh, Frenberg's aircraft is of an F6F3. Um, they, they served aboard the USS Lexington during most of its combat um, time during World War II, uh, which was CV-16. So... Um, those of you who know carriers a little bit, the original Lexington was CV2 and it was uh, sunk at the Battle of the Coral Sea. Um, I'm going to get off track slightly here. Uh, the Lexington CV2, when it was hit, they had time enough to react. So it was a very low loss of life. Um, and recently, of course, it was it was found finally uh, with a bunch of a uh, bunch of my type of aircraft. <laughs> on board. Um, so once I win the lottery. Um, those of you who are interested, we'll we'll go and recover a few devastators and some some wildcats. Sign me up. <laughs> so yeah, they uh, served aboard CV sixteen from November um, nineteen forty three until July forty five until they uh, transferred over to the USS Randolph, which was CV six CV fifteen, which were all Essex class carriers. So what's the difference between an Essex class and then whatever class um, the Lexington? The, ori- the original Lexington? Yes. Um, the original Lexington was actually, um, I forget the treaty name, but um, we had the USS Langley CV-1, which is the original one that was meant to be built as a carrier. Mm-hmm. But CV-2 and CV-3, which are the Lexington and Saratoga, uh, were both laid down as battle cruisers. And basically a loophole or an edit into the, the treaty saying, Hey, you can only have so many carriers or they can be only so large. They basically slapped a flat top to them. Uh, so they weren't very sophisticated carriers. The Essex was more, uh, had more elevators, a little bit. It was more purpose. Yeah. I was going to yep. say purpose built. Yep. Carrier. So, gotcha. And the Essex class, I don't remember the exact amount, but they're the most produced class of carrier during world war two. Oh, cool. So, um, some notable engagements they had. They fought in the Gilbert and Marshall Islands campaigns. Uh, that was including the Battle of Tarawa. So they provided a lot of air support during that portion. Um, and then, of course, the Great Marianas Turkey Shoot. Um, that's where another notable member of VF-16, Alexander Vrashu, uh, he scored 19 uh, victories during the war. He shot down six D-4Y Judies, the dive bomber that replaced the D-3A Vals. Um, in eight minutes, so six aircraft in eight minutes. Holy cow. So there's a famous picture of him uh, holding up six fingers on yeah, all six it, claims. If, if you know World War II aviation, you've seen that yep, picture. Yeah, you've seen it. It's a cool photo. Um, I guess to cover it a little bit, um, the Battle of the Phil Sea, um, which was the greater engagement to the Marianas Turkey shoot, was only a two-day battle. Um, so basically it started with uh, – the U.S. Uh, Navy Marine Corps air groups uh, basically having air sh- airstrikes on the Marianas and also um, the U.S. troops landing on Saipan in June, on June 15th, just a few days before the actual engagement. Um, so what the Japanese were expecting was a, an attack further south in the Carolines or uh, in Palau. 
didn't happen. So they went a little further north. They later found out that uh, the Marianas were eventually to be used as a staging ground um, and a launch base for the, uh, you know, attacks on the home islands by the B-29s. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, basically the Battle of the Philippine Sea uh, that was the deciding factor of uh, whether the Marianas will be used as that staging ground. The Japanese very well knew that if they let the Marianas get in the U.S. hands, the home islands are going to be constantly threatened. End of the beginning. Attrition will start. Yeah. Yep. Beginning of the end. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Beginning of the end. Yep. No, you said <laughs> that right. <laughs> uh, so basically, this was the largest engagement to date, bigger than Midway, bigger than all the other battles um, between the carriers to this point. Uh, Leyte Gulf followed, which was really large as well, um, but it included some Pearl Harbor vet carriers such as the Shokaku and the Zuikaku, also the brand new carrier Taiho and a bunch of other um, smaller carriers as well. Uh, so the Japanese put up nine carriers and I believe the U.S. put up 15. So it raised them, but some of them were escort and some of them were the Essex class Still carriers, a, carrier. a lot of aircraft. Yeah. Basically, um, it was a butt whooping of the of the Japanese. <laughs> um, so what happened was um, two carriers got sunk, not by U.S. aircraft, but rather by submarines. Um, the um, Carvo- Car- Carvala and the uh, Albacore uh, both sank um, the Shokaku and the, uh, the Taiho. It wasn't known that they sank two carriers two carriers actually until after the battle the u.s would have been much more aggressive if they'd known they wiped out two carriers so um that's kind of an interesting footnote there yeah Um, so yeah they lost two carriers by submarines and then in the engagement so the first day was the japanese attacking the carrier forces uh not much loss seen on the u.s side a lot of loss seen seen by the japanese so 500 (laughs) aircraft were lost between um, land and carrier groups by the Japanese, including Army and I was going to say, I can't imagine a lot of those pilots were picked up. No, and not a lot of them were experienced. So the U.S. and I guess we'll talk a little bit about doctrine here. Um, the U.S. Um, approach to training pilots was a little different than the Japanese. So the Japanese, all of their combat vets and experienced pilots stayed on the front, whereas the U.S., you would fly a tour to get your experience, come back and be an instructor and cycle through that experience to new people. So it's kind of interesting. So the U.S. always yeah. had that experience back home if they needed it, but they're also creating an experience on their own, whereas the Japanese, the attrition just rose. I was going to say, by so was that mail. due in part to the Japanese losing just an incredible amount of yeah. their veteran pilots yes. early on? it happened by the end of 1942. Their main core was gone. So it wasn't a lost cause by then, but the pilot quality for the Japanese, the experience just wasn't there. Yeah. Um, so you can, some people will criticize, not criticize, but they'll basically say, Hey, it was the Japanese B team, but still it was <laughs> a large force. 500 aircraft will still, it's not something. a, yeah, that's, that'll do damage. Um, so basically 90% of the carrier air groups were wiped out. So think of that one out of every 10 aircraft survived, Jeez. which is crazy on nine carriers. So, well, two carries were gone, but, but so was it after this campaign that the Japanese started to shift towards their kamikaze or was that more, it was starting. Yep. They, 
basically this marked the end of Japanese naval air power. The army still had their their aircraft, mm-hmm. not as high numbers. By this point, though, both the Japanese air doctrine was kind of accepting the fact that the U.S. had U.S. and the British had um, air superiority. Um, so they would only come up in a defense role. Gotcha. Um, they wouldn't go on fighter sweeps or anything. Wouldn't be as aggressive as they were when they were kind of stopping across the Pacific. Um, and yeah, the U S only lost 123 aircraft. Um, about 80 of them were lost, um, on the second day. So the U S counterattack, not, or pretty successfully, they damaged a few carriers, a couple, a couple battleships and, um, ended up losing those 80 on the return trip because the, the Japanese carrier force was running away and Admiral, Admiral Mark Mitcher was basically the brainchild of all this under spruance. Um, and they wanted to be a little bit aggressive and they went after the carrier force, didn't sink anything, but inflicted a bunch of damage, but again, ran out of fuel. The range just wasn't there. Yeah. Um, a lot of hell divers. So the hell diver, that can be an episode in all time. <laughs> basically the hell diver was very popular with the pilots due to its short range. A lot of accidents early on the plane was modified. I don't remember how many times, but hundreds or thousands of times. Just a ridiculous amount really? of modifications on the on the SB2C. Um, I don't want to get flagged for profanity, but the SB2C was named some B word second class oh, for a reason. Yeah. So <laughs> you've probably heard that before. Yep. But yeah, didn't have the range. Um, a lot of planes made it back in the dark. A lot of people were making their first night carrier landings. Um, so. In a time before... You know, a very advanced systems. Right. Well, well, we talked about Gil. didn't have radar in them at all. Well, think of Gil talking yeah. about his his night landing. If Gil was terrified to do a night landing in a 1970s fighter jet, think of this. Oh. I mean, it was thankfully a clear night. If yeah, it wasn't a clear night. Seriously, then or in a storm. Yeah. Oh, that would have been bad. But yeah, they ended up landing on different carriers. It just it was. Was what a lot it, of graffiti I can imagine on some of those planes. Yeah, I think it was more understood that day. Yeah, <laughs> but, but yeah, really decisive battle that kind of marked the beginning of the end. So gotcha. Um, yeah, so one out of five hundred kills that Fenberg did, but it adds up. It does. And I mean, he got six and he got three on that one day. Really impressive. He's an ace. Yes, can't take that away. Yeah. So um, no, this was unfortunately a, not a lot of information, but we were able to kind of dig stuff up on it for you guys yeah um and and in the last section um you know maybe we kind of shot ourselves in the foot by having the first vet or first ace have his own war right yeah um and then the you know people are in the the aces since it's been pretty you know hit or miss that they have a a warbird after them um in the case of friendberg there really wasn't cohesive like markings to denote what squadron he was with at that time it was all like you said two three tone three tone pretty generic or just a single dark glossy sea sea blue later on yeah covered probably in the aces yeah they didn't i mean other than maybe his you know six rising sun sun kill markings there was really no way to denote whose plane it was uh so in the sense of if he has a warbird survivor if you see any um, was it dash two series Hellcats? A dash three. Dash yeah. three, dash, I think a couple fives. There's a lot of fives out there too. But yeah, you'd if you ran into a three or a five, that 
I mean, there's plenty of Hellcats out there. So yeah, absolutely. There's one not far from us that's a Dash 5 um, down at Fagan Fighters. That is true. That so is you, true. you'll run into some. Um, the one at the Udvar Hazy Center is probably the closest with the three-tone yeah. camo. True. Cool. But yeah, um, that kind of wraps it up for uh, the series. Uh, well, not the series, excuse me. Keep mixing up series and episode. Episode, yes. It's that When I say series, Almost, yeah. I mean episode. Hey, I, we're not ending it Tuesday's early. Tuesday's basically Monday. Exactly, so, yeah. exactly. I, and tomorrow and be, is yeah. basically Friday. Yeah. I'm not too bad. Yeah, so you have something pretty exciting. Yeah, so... Uh, on Thursday, I'm flying out to Colorado to meet up with my good friend, Tom Thomas, avid listener of the podcast. Um, and we are going to be going on like an all inclusive airplane trip. It is, you know, we land at 1145 and within two hours we, we have access to visit the, um, uh, Colorado Air National Guard base to check out their stack displays, which of all things that they have on stack display, they have a Texan, hmm. an AT6 Texan. Um, very excited to see that. Um, they have two F100s, which is pretty rare. Most times places don't do multiple mm-hmm. of the same aircraft, um, but there's a cool story behind both of them. So I'm excited for that. Um, the day after that, we're going to Peterson Air Force Base, their museum. They have a Puerto Rican P47 That's on indoor display. Really cool. Um and then scattered throughout the base, I'm excited. They have a 57th Fighter Interceptor Squadron F-102 <laughs> with the checkerboard tail. And then they have an F-4C that's painted up as a 57th Fighter Interceptor Squadron MIG Killer F-4. It's not the original. Of all things, the original was actually sent to the Boneyard. Really? Yeah. Can you huh. believe that? I wonder who thought of that. Probably some general that hated the 57. I guess. I mean, but uh, well, I'll I won't spoil the the because I could talk about that for probably another four hours. Yeah, and you'll probably throw some stuff up. Oh, see, there yeah. will be a ton of stuff going on the story. Um, but I guess by the time that this is airing, it will it will already be. be complete, yeah. Up. So yeah. So yeah. You'll see it. You you will have retroactively. It will be on our Instagram story. So if you missed them. Go back and check out the um, Max or Colorado trip. Yep. Uh, Instagram stories bubble on our homepage. You'll see everything. Come to think of it, I still need to throw up a post on on the museum in Alberta. So, so maybe you'll throw up. It'll pop up there too. It'll pop up there too. We'll get some. Yeah. So um, five more to go. Yes, Um, sir. Well, we have a few options. So we'll keep you guys waiting who let us know yeah. who you want to see next you want to see we have we have a spitfire we have a p47 and then the rest are hellcats yeah so that's right if you want to see another hellcat go ahead yeah. maybe we'll throw a vote up on instagram yeah but yeah um let us know we plan on recording this one after you get back yeah i was one. thinking probably thursday something like that yeah, a couple days to recover we'll but, plan it yeah so well, awesome. yeah, thanks, guys. We really appreciate you continuing to listen. These this is probably my favorite series we've done so I, far. This has been, you know, it's it's so cool researching these guys and hearing their story and, you know, finding out, you know, I'll, I'll end it after this, but just the fact that this guy came back and went from Hellcats mm-hmm. to Mustangs. Yeah. That's, that's, weird, that's not, that's yeah. a very weird, very it's big difference. Weird, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, yeah. Thank you guys again for tuning in and we'll, uh, we'll catch you on the next one. Yep. Thanks guys.